Welcome to the Q Convos Podcast. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Q Convos Podcast with the Initiative for Equal Rights. My name is Fidelia. And today I'll be talking about the mental health effects of intimate partner violence and just generally gender-based violence perpetrated against queer women. Uh, I have with me in the studio Anu Jide Ojo, who is a clinical psychologist and works with sexual and gender minority groups in Nigeria. Anu will be talking about intimate partner violence among queer women, mental and emotional abuse, and the effects that self-censorship as a safety tactic can have on the health, mental health of queer women. Anu, hi. Hello. Can you tell us briefly about yourself and your work? Uh, my name is Anu, like you said. I'm a clinical psychologist and I majorly work with the LGBT population in Nigeria. And outside Nigeria, I have a sprinkle of clients outside <laughs> of Nigeria. Um, outside of my work there, I founded Us Therapy. It's a platform centered around creating resources for young professionals at work so that they would be able to navigate it better. I don't I think that you you don't need to pay for your success in your career with yeah. your mental health or having like nonstop anxiety. Oh, that's so amazing. That's what our therapy is about. So that's me in a nutshell. Thank you for joining us on the Q Convos podcast. Um in your work with um sexual and gender minority groups as a clinical psychologist, do you see a lot of clients who are queer women that are in abusive intimate relationships? Unfortunately yes. Um, the pattern that I have noticed is when they lack the resources to be financially independent and when they have an outset from their family, it's usually like a breeding ground for them to experience, they're more prone to experience gender-based violence because they are incredibly dependent on this partner yeah. and they are also dependent on the partner's benevolence. Yeah. And once that goes awry, anything can happen. So, yes, so basically happens. family rejection of queer women can directly lead to them being in violence. There's a correlation, there's a correlation oh, wow. there, yes. Do they feel like they can report to the police or to GBV organizations? No, because um, these organizations first have to vali- validate their sexuality. Right. They have to see that um, you being the lesbian or a queer woman or a trans woman is not a problem. It's mm-hmm. that you have experienced violence. That's a problem. But a lot of times when they go to these organizations, even amongst mental health professionals, unfortunately, yeah. the um, attention is diverted to, oh, you're a lesbian. Why are you a lesbian? Why? Yeah. What have you done differently? So it's like, if I cure you of your lesbianism, then you, won't be you wouldn't be in a situation. violent relationship. Wow. And that's usually a problem. So, right. Yeah. Um, so that's for people who even speak out. Do you think that many people do not speak out at all because them them speaking out is already complicated by being queer? Definitely, definitely. Okay, let's talk about the other kinds of abuse that queer women can face from their partners or their friends, families, their peers. Like you mentioned, being ousted from home just because of their queerness. So we have emotional abuse, mental abuse, financial abuse, like you said. What are some peculiar kinds that you have had to work with like a few times or have had to help clients get through? And what are some, I don't know, triggers that queer women are at risk of just by virtue of living in a homophobic society like Nigeria? Okay, so um, amongst the people that I have seen, the baseline is financial abuse because a lot of time when you're outside from your family, you don't, you're most likely not going to be educated enough to get mm-hmm. a paying job. 
And when you're dependent on a partner that can control your going and your going out, that sort of censorship of movement yeah. is where like emotional abuse comes in. Yeah. And then physical abuse can occur when it's just like, oh, why isn't my breakfast ready? And it's interesting that in those type of relationships, the lesbians would want to perpetuate like heteronormative standards, like I am the man right. in this relationship. So you must accord me the respect that you would accord your husband right. or something else. I have actually heard that statement wow. like happen. And um, within the queer community, um, bisexual women are also actually more likely to be abused because it's like, choose between me and say your ex-boyfriend she yeah. your ex-boyfriend likes it like this or i'm going to out you if you don't do xyz right. so there's the emotional abuse of your partner threatening to out you or your partner threatening to disclose your hiv status if right. you're hiv oh, yeah. if you're hiv positive or if you're if you're trans and you're not out to a certain group of people your partner like threatening to do that as well and then all of this is compounded by this idea of wanting to maintain a romanticized notion of what a what a homosexual relationship should look like because you're still trying to validate your relationship to other people. So you're trying to tell your friends that, hey, my relationship or my lesbianness is okay. And then in the next sentence, this person that I'm expressing love to me. is abusive. Right. Me. So it's just like you're carrying the weight of the entire queer community on your head but mm -hmm. it's not your job to do that so, but a lot of people walk around with that like job so to speak what about um, abuse that isn't necessarily from intimate partners mm -hmm. I feel like there's also financial abuse from family who's, who, who, who tell queer people that if they don't convert or if they don't stop being gay they would stop um, educating them I've seen a lot of cases where families withdraw financial support for their person just because they were outed or even send them away from home those also count as abuse right one thousand percent financial abuse is one of the strongest tactics of like censoring or controlling a queer person's person. behavior and there's also religious abuse as well right, you know yes. within the spiritual community is it that you're constantly like verbally telling them that there's something wrong with you or they use isolation as a tool to sort of marginalize you like oh this is a damn thing and this mm -hmm. is an us thing so those are common ways that they experience abuse um a lot of queer women especially um trans women and to just build off of the conversation we just had feel excluded by their family so first of all they are rejected by family and then they are rejected by society nigerian society says oh you shouldn't be gay um, they are rejected by their friends. Many people lose friends when they come out or are outed. And then they are even excluded from, for example, the feminist movement that is very, very cis-normative and heteronormative and doesn't want to make space for trans women or lesbian women or bisexual women. Um, how do you think this kind of widespread exclusion from different aspects of your life can affect your mental health? <laughs> So belongingness is a basic need of any society, of any human being. There's a reason why at the end of 2020, everybody got engaged. Everybody <laughs> got into a relationship. It was like, yeah, I can't do this isolation, isolation right. shit anymore. But that's, that is the impact of like wanting a community. It is literally a survival tool. Like yeah. from an evolution perspective, if you're outside of a group, you're more likely to be taken by like, predators and mm -hmm. all of that right. so think about it like in modern day setting where 
you go to the office and the first thing you do is just to say hello, hi. That is feeding into like a community. sense of meaning and a sense of community. So when all of that is out, it's the, it will have the same impact of say, even I think studies have shown that loneliness has the same impact on the body as taking 15 cigarettes a day or wow. being alcoholic. Yes. And it's sort of it's a sort of like emotional nutrient to your body. So when that is absent, it would impact your anxiety level. You're more likely to be suicidal. You're more likely to be depressed. You're more likely to have all of these like common and even uncommon like mental health, mental illnesses because yeah. like nobody is checking in on you. And as I even like in the world today, most like mental health professionals are scared of like a second wave epidemic mm-hmm. happening outside of the isolation, outside of the isolation that's happened last year yeah. so but when it's not timely like everybody's experiencing this sort of isolation when it's because of something that you can't change about yourself that reinforces it even more because it's like i brought this onto myself and you internalize some of the hate that people are saying that's mm-hmm. why sometimes people would carry themselves to sign up to conversion therapy because they just want to belong Right. Can we actually talk about conversion therapy? That's because true. that's religious abuse. Can you just like talk a little about conversion so, therapy? Conversion therapy. Well, first of all, it's not therapy. It's not right. therapy. It's, it's just conversion practice. Right. It's a violent harm, whether it's benign or malignant. It's mm-hmm. like an attempt to change someone's sexual or gender identity. And it happens outside, within and outside the church. I think um, religious leaders are at the front faces of conversion Conversion therapy. So they do that with deliverance, with the messages that they send, or even like basic, quote unquote, basic laying on of hands. Right. Because, you know, it's not done out of love. There's a sort of rebuke that comes with conversion therapy. And in a country like Nigeria, where your face is something that you hold so dear to you, hearing over and over again that you're doing something that God hates, that God doesn't love you, that God has rejected you or something like that, that would also feed into that isolation that we just spoke about. Mm -hmm. Outside of the church, it happens with medical professionals. Some psychologists, unfortunately, practice aversion therapy where you try to associate your sexuality with something disgusting. So the moment you think about you know, loving someone of the same gender or different gender, depending on your sexuality, you feel nauseous or you, or you start like using any of the tactics that you were taught in therapy. Same with medical doctors where rather than focusing on the illnesses, they'll focus on your sexuality and tell you that, oh, what if you could change it by Mm -hmm. doing X, Y, Z. And same with family that they would want to use like punitive measures measures, like beating and all of that. So, Conversion therapy has not worked. It cannot work. People adapt to conversion therapy by saying, you know what, if I just conform, they will stop. And people, right. and then those ones to say, oh yes, praise God, worked. conversion therapy has worked, but it doesn't work because there's nothing wrong with your sexuality. There's nothing wrong with your gender identity. Even among, um, the DSM-5 has long since um, crossed out LGBTQ as an illness. Yeah. It's usually like the impact of it that is the illness the impacts being if you're depressed as a result of homophobia that is or if you're experiencing gender dysphoria that is the problem not necessarily your transness or your sexuality but yeah oh, thank you for shedding light on that many queer women have learned how to self-censor in a bid to fit into social norms so people are altering their preferred gender expressions 
um, they are switching pronouns when talking about their partners. They are avoiding being intimate with partners publicly. They are just doing all the things that they can do to fit into a society that says that only heterosexual, being heterosexual is allowed, only being cisgender is allowed. And people are basically living inauthentically in order to fit in. Um, do you think that this kind of self-censorship would have effects on people, queer women, queer people on a long-term basis? Definitely. Hypervigilance is never a good thing. Think about um, it's in the context of, say, race or even um, gender. Mm-hmm. When you're taking a walk as a woman at 9 p.m. at night, you would not put two earphones yeah, and you're like, your man is coming here and you're crossing there. Your man is coming yeah. here. Like, when they measure your, like, physiological responses, your heartbeat is racing, your palms are sweating, you know, all of these responses are telling of something. Mm-hmm. And they're usually also symptoms of anxiety. The same with your sexuality. Right. When you're constantly living in that sort of hyper alertness, hyper vigilance, two, four, seven, a day, it will definitely tell on yourself. There's a lot of, like, anger that you're holding on to, that you have to be this way. There's a lot of sadness that could spill over into depression that you have to be alert all the time. And then there's also the anxiety that you're constantly living with. And usually uh, when we're navigating anxiety in sessions, we're trying to like distinguish between what is an emergency and what is not an emergency. And you're trying to teach your mind that, okay, these daily situations that you're in is not in an emergency. So you don't need any of these responses, but... Actually, it is an emergency. It mm-hmm. is a coping response. So your mind is constantly adapting to say that, okay, this person that I'm talking to now, if I mistakenly use she instead of he, will they call my parents or will they sack me or will they do this? And it's it's ridiculous. So yes, it will definitely seep into your mental health. It will seep into your interactions with people and to definitely seep into the quality of life that you can give yourself. Because people that will just like pack up and isolate themselves because the energy that it requires is exhausting right. and again when you isolate yourself there's also that impact of like no community and no belonging and yeah. no space so yeah it's interesting and from your own perspective as a therapist who works with sexual and gender minority groups and um just generally what do you think needs to be done by cso's by maybe the nigerian government to better handle <laughs> cases of violence against queer women because you can't use the same strategies or the same structures you're using to handle um, gender-based violence against heterosexual women or cisgender women to address the one against transgender women or queer women. Like You have to specifically create strategies for them. What do you think needs to be done? What do you think needs to change for that to happen? It might be a reach, but um, starting with like the educational like system, like teaching people that being queer is not a horrible thing. Teaching people about the history of queerness from a cultural perspective, yeah. like re- really sensitizing people to what queerness looks like outside of like the harmful messages that have been spread is always a good start because homophobia is taught just as you know cultural sensitivity can be taught. Right, funding research programs on 
what how it impacts the physical health how it impacts mental health funding just like the way they fund like studies on diabetes mm-hmm. and funding things they should fund yeah because there are a lot of studies on gender-based violence against women exactly. but they never mention the peculiarity of being a woman exactly. in a same-sex relationship exactly like funding actual studies that would drive the conversation because it's not something that will be changing five years or ten years but when it starts it would spiral right and then you know collaborating with institutions with ngos like tears nigeria mm-hmm. to like get to get their work on a larger platform because like conversations like this are already happening books are already being written yeah. so like get it on a larger platform and then generally with like medical and mental health professionals teach them cultural competence the difference there's a difference between um conducting therapy with a quiet person and conducting therapy for a cishet person. Yeah. Both experiences are valid, but they are both unique. Very different. So, yeah. yes. And also, obviously, the SSMPA cannot remain in place if you want to protect queer people. Like, exactly. That is a baseline. Exactly. What's the word? It's just blocking all forms of support for queer people. Mm-hmm. And even healthcare professionals feel like they shouldn't attend to queer people because they don't understand the law they think that the law is against all forms of support exactly. for queer people yep thank you so much Anu for joining us today thank you and thank you folks me. for listening to this episode if you or anybody you know is experiencing any form of violence as a result of their sexual orientation gender identity or expression or sex characteristics please reach out to the initiative for equal rights by visiting the initiative for equal rights.org or reach out to us on social media at Tears Nigeria at T-I-E-R-S Nigeria. Until the next episode, this is Q Convos by the Initiative for Equal Rights and my name is Fidelia. Thanks for listening to the Q Convos podcast brought to you by the Initiative for Equal Rights produced by 808 Extra. Kindly visit www.theinitiativeforequalrights.org to learn more.